Well, greetings and welcome to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Jason Mullet. Uh, you can visit our website at logicalbelief.org. Uh, you can watch these podcasts on YouTube, and you can search for and subscribe to the channel there. Uh, we can also be found on iTunes from your favorite podcast catcher. Uh, just search through your podcast catcher and subscribe to the channel, uh, the podcast feed, and you can catch us on there. If you uh, have a word of encouragement or you have a question that you want to have answered on the air, you can send those to jason at logicalbelief.org. I do want to thank uh, those of you that have sent messages and words of encouragement. I've received uh, uh, actually quite a few of those, and those are very very helpful and encouraging. So uh, keep those up. So today we are going to be finishing out our series on the Anabaptists. And so I have Kevin back in the studio with me today. And uh, what we're going to do today is... Uh, kind of start off the episode just talking about our own experience uh, in the Anabaptist movement, uh, mine uh, within the uh, Mennonites, and Kevin uh, within the the Amish. Uh, we'll talk about uh, some of the views um, when, in pertaining to the gospel that uh, we encountered uh, growing up. And uh, then we're going to also... Um, have a brief discussion towards the end um, about a book that Kevin was able to get. Uh, he went over to a friend of his who is an Anabaptist preacher, and uh, his friend gave him a, a book uh, by Dirk Phillips or Dietrich Phillips, goes by both. And uh, we looked through that book, and um, and I'll actually I'll just hold it up here so you can see it. Uh, you can see it right there. Uh, hold it up to the camera. Uh, Dietrich Phillips Handbook. And uh, the, he has a whole section in there where he talks quite a bit about uh, his position and the doctrine of celestial flesh, which we talked about, which is a, a heretical view um, that uh, impacts uh, the humanity uh, of Christ and is kind of... Um, a docetic or a docinism type view, which uh, would have um, analogies within the Gnostics um, and early Christianity, which also uh, viewed anything of flesh and of earth as evil. And there's there's some very interesting things in here on that. So we're going to go ahead and read that and uh, look at a few things there. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and transition the screen so you guys can see Kevin. So Kevin has joined me again today, so I appreciate that. I appreciate him uh, coming on and uh, helping out with this. Uh, I know it's not something that he normally does, but uh, he's been very happy or helpful. And uh, Well, I don't know if he's been happy about it, but he's been very gracious in uh, <laughs> uh, joining in on this. So I really appreciate that. So um so what I wanted to do was uh, <clears throat> just go over some of uh, my own experience uh, in the uh, Mennonite church. Uh, I, I grew up, I was born um, uh, into the Mennonites. Uh, my family, uh, we, they were Mennonite missionaries to the country of Haiti. Um, and so uh, from ages 9 to 12, um, I was in the country of Haiti for a Mennonite mission, and when I came back, uh, we uh, rejoined the church that we had been a part of uh, before we had gone on the mission, and uh, And I remember, um, and I've told Kevin this particular story, but I don't believe that I've shared this on the podcast, is uh, I remember a time uh, I was uh, president of the youth group uh, at our church, and so I would sometimes... Uh, be involved in teaching Wednesday night Bible studies and things like that within the youth group. And I, oh, a particular passage that I would, uh, uh, I like talking about was Romans chapter five. And I don't really know <laughs> why I was so intrigued by it. Uh, a lot of times my message on Romans chapter five was, um, you know, what we do today impacts generations that follow. <laughs> which is kind of an interesting way of <laughs> of uh, narsegeting, I think is the word you can use, uh, narsegeting a text of scripture, which is really talking about federalship 
and uh, uh, federal headship and um, uh, Adam uh, being either in Adam or in Christ. But uh, um, I, I enjoyed narcissizing that text. But uh, however, I did as a result of trying to go through the text systematically, um, I, uh, you know, I just kind of taught what it said and I was reprimanded. Uh, after reprimanded after one of the uh, times I spoke on a Wednesday night to the youth, uh, the the youth sponsors pulled me aside and they reprimanded me uh, because I um, spoke as if there was something called original sin. And uh, I was told that that is not true, that we're born neutral and that we um, we make decisions on our own and that uh, that you know we don't have there's no such thing as original sin that that's that's a Calvinism thing um, is what I was told and uh, that that's really bad that was probably the first time I'd ever heard the term Calvinism uh, didn't know what it was up to that point so that is often not always the view of original sin within the Mennonite community is very interesting. Um, I have from my dad's library, he's a he's a Mennonite. Um, he has a book by Kaufman, uh, what's his first name actually? Daniel Kaufman. Um, and he has a section in here on original sin. This is called uh, Doctrines of the Bible by Daniel Kaufman. And in fact, a lot of the stuff in here is very, very orthodox. Um, and I was actually impressed with uh, some of the things that he had in there. Um, there's some things that uh, are definitely unbiblical, but his his view of original sin is that. I mean, his, his section on total depravity, or uh, what as he calls it, utter depravity, uh, in this book is, in fact, very, very orthodox. Um, however, he... He has, after he goes through all the scripture demonstrating man's complete inability, his uh, his fallen nature, that he's dead in trespasses, that he's a child of the devil, that he has a rebellious mind, that he has an evil heart, that he's a defiled creature, um, he's in bondage to the devil. After all that, he talks about, uh, he has this paragraph at the end, which um, he doesn't really have any scripture for, but uh, he calls it the uh, spark of life. And he says that there is, and if I can quote here, yet there is something in all men that is capable of responding to the goodness and grace of God. Uh, and that's how he kind of ends his chapter, cap or his chapter on, um, on uh, original sin and the depravity of man. So I just wanted to kind of pass this over to Kevin. And what has what was your experience? Did you ever encounter this particular topic uh, within your um, experience growing up uh, uh, in the Amish community? Well, no, I didn't. Uh, growing up Amish, I mean, it it was you know church was every two weeks that we went to church. It was a three hour sermon. It was in the Pennsylvania Dutch and. The, it would have been the German translation of the of the Bible would have been read. Very little understanding of of what was actually being taught, as far as from Scripture and and the Amish are are very legalistic. I mean, it was more about did you have your hair cut the right way? Did you have the right outfit on? Did you were you wearing the right shoes? And and so doctrine was very, I mean it was it was unheard of. Which you know, as a child, not knowing you know not knowing, I'm sure I'm sure there was maybe more, you know, said about it. But I mean, I mean the 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 Bible was read. I mean there was a, a couple minutes you know of explaining, but uh, I mean I don't know how you would how you would say it. I mean. As far as in the home, I mean, there was there was no study of the Bible at all. It was you know you went to you went on your Sunday you went to church, and you know it was, it was as a child it was something you endured. You know, it, hopefully mom gave you a nice handful of yeah. candy to make it enjoyable. <laughs> now, when it comes to 
just the nature of man and, and what would be the understood doctrine among the Amish. Many of them, I think, would hold that man is capable of pleasing God, at least to some level. Uh, I was actually recently at my grandfather's funeral, uh, and he was Amish. And uh, um, the Amish preacher was preaching, and he preached for a little while in English, and um, which is rather unusual, but it is something that some of them will do these days. And uh, he did he did make the comment that we are... Um, inclined we tend to lean towards sin <laughs> was what he said in relation to our nature well yeah I mean they they definitely speak of you know our inclination to sin how you know naturally we we like you would say lean towards sin but that you know in and of ourselves that we we must purge our ourselves and and it's it's not brought to the heart level. It's it's merely outward, you know. Don't lie. Don't, you know. It, it's the outward appearance. What can be seen, not the heart attitude. And so that was, that that was the probably the big thing, you know. This was it was all about appearances, you know. And as long as it was all, you know, as you were good with the church, that was that was. That was the heart of it. If you were, you know, if you were okay with the church, then you were okay with God. Yeah, and they, ha I mean, and, and this goes back to even the early Anabaptists was a was a heavy focus on practice versus doctrine, and we still see that today, um, and even more strongly among the Amish than we do the Mennonites, but uh, a heavy focus on practice and, and very little focus on doctrine. Well, yes, I, I would say that the Amish have actually gone further than the Roman Catholic Church in in the in holding up tr the tradition. I mean there were there was countless of things, you know, growing up seeing the outside world, you know, like why don't we have electric? Why don't we drive cars? Why, you know, why all these things and and for the most part, I mean there was no answer. I mean it was like, well, we're not supposed to be of the world or you know, or it was no, it was always just this way. This is just, no, this is what we do. We're Amish. This is what the way we live. And, I mean, there was, there was no answer. I, I, I think for the, for the most part, most of, of the people that are Amish don't know the answer. It was just, it's it's all they've ever knew. It was just always that way. And that it, that really is their answer for for why they do the things they do. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have a series of questions that um, I had kind of put together. Uh, Kevin was going to have a discussion with um, with uh, uh, an Anabaptist, uh, a uh, Mennonite preacher, and he did. He had a he had a discussion. They mostly I focused, ended up focusing on celestial flesh and non resistance. But yeah, I'll say I got like two of what the fifteen questions. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that I had put together, but. Uh, but I did want to talk about uh, one of the next uh, questions that I had here um, also, and that is, uh, uh, it was question number four that I had given to Kevin. And uh, so I'm going to give some of these questions as we go. Uh, so those of you, if you know Anabaptists, those with that sort of a background, these are some of the questions that you can ask them and, uh, you know, encourage them to give a biblical answer to. Yeah, and so we'll have to improvise and kind of, I mean, me and you have both. Experienced, uh, yeah, experienced yeah. it, so we yeah. can give kind of some, you know, at least somewhat what the answer to the questions would be from their perspective. Yeah. So question number four that I had um, was, uh, well, the first two, uh, or the question number one, I had a question for Kevin on celestial flesh doctrine, which he did talk to uh, the, uh, and we'll talk about that more towards the end of the show, uh, what the um, the Mennonite preacher said about celestial flesh, but. Uh, then question number two and three were, what is your view on original sin? Does original sin have any impact on the will of man? Um, before I actually jump to the next question, what what is your perspective that most Mennonite and Amish would say that original sin, those that would hold to original sin, would they say that it has any impact upon the will of man? You know, what impact does it really have upon man? Well, as as we see today, I mean, in, especially more in the Mennonite circles as as they've been exposed to orthodox teaching you you will get a you may get a, a very orthodox answer to that question but uh as we know even within our our Arminian brothers and sisters 
while they they answer with an orthodox answer to the question when they go to apply it or make practice of it you, that's where you see the change and in 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 their application of it i mean they told well same as the armenian they would just deny it yeah know, and yeah with the, that it really has any sort of uh, true impact. They might give lip service to it, but... Um, well, yeah, I'll say... And, and as far as the Amish, I mean, I most Amish people, if you ask them the question, they would stand there and look at you bewildered because it to them it, it has absolutely no... I mean, it, it's, it doesn't matter. I mean, the question is, you know, are are you wearing, you know the right clothes the right shoes and are you in good standing with the church i mean that's yeah um i wanted to kind of briefly uh hit up on some scripture i was looking for it and actually i finally found it here i knew it was in first corinthians 5 somewhere i thought at first it was in first corinthians 15 but i wanted to briefly touch upon um the amish's practice uh their tendency to cloister and remove try to remove themselves from what they classify as the world Unfortunately, since they don't have a biblical doctrine of the nature of man, they don't realize that you can't you can't put walls <laughs> and separate yourself from from the world because you're just as much a part of the world as those out there. And there's a lack of recognition in that. So um, uh, Paul um, said uh, when he, in first Corinthians chapter five, when he was talking about purging the 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 one out from among you that was uh, engaged in gross sexual sin um he was uh, likely um uh i think he was married to his father or having a relationship with his uh, father's uh, wife and paul makes the comment that you know that not even among the the heathen is such a is such a thing seen but uh, he does he does make the the note here i wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters since you would need to go out of the world and so that is fundamentally how most of the the Amish and even some of the Mennonites especially like the Hutterite groups uh, would cloister and would um, segregate themselves try to segregate themselves from the world when Paul specifically says that that's not something that we do with the world, he said, don't associate yourself with this one who calls himself brother, but yet engages in this gross sin. Um, but when it comes to the world, you'd have to go out of the world to not associate with these people. And so we, we still we associate with those that are engaged in gross sin because we bring the gospel to them. We uh, we we share the good news with them. Any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I like. As you were saying, the Amish and even like the conservative Mennonite, you'll you'll see them in in their small communities engaging, you know, only as they have to, you know, with the outside world to survive. And I mean, as you look at it, it, it it's it's the monastery all over yeah. again. It's it this one here includes women and children. It's yeah, only, only and, and I'm glad you brought up that ver or the, the term monastery because it. Um, I was actually just ready to go to a text in Colossians chapter 2. Um, and it's uh, beginning in verse 16. It says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food, drink, or in regard to a festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, this is specifically speaking about Old Testament ordinances um, in the ceremonial law uh, and things of those nature, which are a type and shadow of Christ. And he goes, Let let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and uh, it says worship of angels going to detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensual mind and while the context of this is speaking specifically about uh, the Old Testament ordinances and and the ceremonial law and returning to those um, it does have application about uh, just as Jesus brought up that, you know, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. And in the same way, um, a lot of the Mennonites, the Anabaptists, and the Amish, and the Hutterites have engaged in forms of asceticism, uh, depriving themselves of things which really have no biblical basis whatsoever. 
And while the early Anabaptists condemned the Roman Catholic Church for for ignoring the Bible and you know abiding to the traditions of man to to the you know the councils and all that, as we see you know five hundred years later, the Amish especially and even the conservative Mennonites, I mean they're as bad or worse as the Roman Catholic Church. They 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 merely have a new set of traditions. Yeah. I mean, some of the... Uh, I, I attended um, the... One of the church... Uh, I went to a private Christian school through most of my um, my elementary and middle and, and high school. And um, it, was, uh, it was a more conservative uh, Mennonite sect than what we were part of. But uh, some of the rules that they had were just absolutely absurd. Uh, things like um, you can't have T-shirts with lettering on them. Um, you uh, your car had to be black. Uh, you couldn't have a radio. Uh, they would actually break the antennas off their vehicles. Uh, some were actually went as far as that your your hubcaps and your rims had to be spray painted black. Uh, some didn't do that, but. Uh, yeah, in in the community where I grew up, there was a there was a a uh, like as you said a sect. Same thing. I mean, everything was black and yeah. And all those different groups would uh, trace their heritage back to the Anabaptists. Um, this particular group was known as like the Hornings or the Whistlers. I don't know if any of you guys are familiar with them, but they're a sect of Mennonite. Uh, they would call themselves Mennonites, uh, but they would trace themselves back to. Um, the Anabaptists of the Radical Reformation, yeah, and th- that's something. I mean, as as you could see, as we went through the a little bit of the history of of the beginnings of Anabaptists, it you still see the same thing today. As I mean, th- there's not a a whole lot of unity. I mean, they're over the smallest things. I mean, Anabaptist movement today is still made up of of thousands of small groups splintered groups yeah they, absolutely they, they all have their their little niche of their little pet practices that separate themselves from the other group yeah absolutely um even among the amish a lot of people might not be familiar with this but you have what's called new order amish you have old order amish you have uh what's it called the john martins you have um there, there's a whole bunch of there's different groups of, of different them there's many different groups in each area there's uh many different groups and some won't even associate with the others very much um and things like that so there's not there's not any sort of unification among the amish at all and uh, many of them need to be reached with the gospel because frankly many of them have not heard the gospel well yeah i was i would say i this is that's one of the the main reasons for me being involved in this it, it really is they're they're a lost people group right along with with the Jehovah's Witness, with the Mormons, I mean they, and and the Roman Catholic Church. I mean it it, it is an offshoot of the Roman Catholic Church, and and yeah, in many and, ways, yeah, and, and in the same way of as you know that there are those who are in the Catholic Church who are saved. I mean, it's not that there is none in the in the Amish and Mennonite Church who aren't Christians. It's it's, it's the majority that the gospel is not there. Yeah. I mean, there are exceptions among the, the Mennonites. And, uh, for example, this book I was holding up earlier, um, many, many of the doctrines in here are very orthodox. In fact, he has a section on the atonement uh, where he upholds penal substitutionary atonement. And he puts down other, even though I don't believe he can consistently hold to that with the rest of his theology, but he does hold to that. Um uh, he does not hold to the this particular Mennonite, as most Mennonites, does not hold to the security of the believer um, in Christ. Um, and um, he definitely holds salvation is ultimately determined by the autonomous free will of man. Uh, so there's definite issues uh, within them, but uh, on things like the Trinity, things like uh, original sin, um, and penal substitutionary atonement. He doesn't hold to something like moral government theory of the atonement, which, in fact, we'll get to that a little bit, but that is one of the very common views uh, that is held among uh, Mennonites and Anabaptists. Uh, we'll discuss that here a little bit when we get to the atonement. Uh, but I want to jump here to the next question. 
Well, actually, even before I do that, I wanted to bring up one more text. I wanted to bring up uh, Romans chapter 10. And I think this was a verse that I quoted earlier, but this is why Kevin and I have a passion for um, for our heritage. And that is in uh, Romans chapter 10. It says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for God is for them that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And we were just talking about the long list of rules and, and things that they make uh, in order to uh, ultimately is to establish their righteousness. Yeah, I mean, that's the perfect passage to ex- explain the motive. And and just like the, the Jews, I mean, the, their whole life revolves around around their traditions and, and and in their mind, it it's all done, being done to appease God. Yeah. I mean, while while they while they have church, you know, they read from the Bible, and but still, the religion it's it's nothing more than that. It's a religion built on the traditions of man. And uh, yeah, zeal without knowledge. Zeal without knowledge. Yeah, uh, absolutely. The uh, the next question I had. Um, is uh, question number four that I had, uh, which is a, is a question I would encourage you if you encounter people within the Anabaptist groups to, to ask them this question. It says, when an individual places their faith and trust in Christ and repents of their sin, are all their sins expiated past and future or are only their past sins forgiven? Well, they would answer that as only the past sins. Yeah, most Mennonites and Amish would say only past sins. Uh, And ultimately they have to because they don't believe in the security of the believer. And what they don't recognize is that this is fundamentally a Roman Catholic doctrine. This is Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism teaches the same thing. It's the treadmill of uh, uh, penances, uh, the treadmill of um, the sacerdotal system in order to maintain the grace which you um, had infused to you at the moment of baptism, uh, the Mennonites and Amish would instead kind of hold to an infused grace um, uh, doctrine also, which theirs would say that upon confession of faith, you're infused with the grace of God and your past sins are gone, but you need to maintain a life of obedience in faith uh, in order to maintain that salvation. And as we've talked about previously, the, the whole thing, it's, they, they see Jesus as an example. Jesus came to be an example. That is the emphasis they put on it. So salvation is maintained by, by living lives that, that follow in his steps that you know it it's by our own accomplishments as we you know as we do our best to to live the life that Christ lived for he was our example yeah uh, a lot of them um will even hold to go as far as holding to the example theory of the atonement that Christ's death was an example of how we should give up our lives or they'll hold to what we call the moral government theory of the atonement that that God is the moral governor of the universe needed to have his wrath and his justice appeased so that it was possible that he could forgive sinners if they met certain conditions and that is uh, the way that um, they'll often look at it. They unfortunately don't have a true gospel of peace with God. We have in Hebrews ten fourteen it says, for by a single offering he perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It's not, it's not just your past sins are expiated at the moment of, but you actually have peace with God, which is Romans 5, 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We actually have peace, not a temporary ceasefire. <laughs> we actually have peace with the uh, with the righteous Creator of the universe, and that would be completely against the beliefs of the Amish. I mean, they 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 see salvation as a as a day by day process. I mean, yes, you go to bed that night, and and if you've confessed your sins, you know, and and done your best, you know, well. You know, if I die in my sleep, well, I'm good. But, you know, tomorrow's a new day in which, you know, it'll once again, you know, 
I I must do my best and 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 I must I must work for this and you know it it, it Christ has died to make it available but now now it's up to me to uh, maintain that salvation. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. In Colossians 2 verse 14, this is another one of my most just favorite verses and that is uh, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. Christ canceled. Uh, sin is a legal debt, which uh, legal debts can be transferred. And our debt has been transferred to Christ. Um, in Second uh, 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 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For our sake he became sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So he took upon our sins uh, upon him. And uh, and our sins have been canceled um, at the cross, and unfortunately, they just do not have um, a true gospel which actually gives peace. In Romans chapter six, verse six, it says, "We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin." So the scriptures tell us that we have been crucified with Christ. Our our sin that has been canceled, we've been set free from sin. And so that is the the reason why we believe in the doctrine of regeneration. When God saves us, when he sets us free, he gives us a new heart and new desires, as it's uh, promised in um, Ezekiel 36 and, and uh, 13, where it tells us that he will cause us to walk in his footsteps and his ways. And uh, in Ephesians 2, uh, verse 10, I believe it says, uh, uh, he saved us by grace so that uh, we would walk in the works that he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And in Colossians chapter 1, it tells us that we are a new creation in Christ. So we believe in regeneration uh, and that uh, uh, we are justified by faith and we actually have peace with God. Another question that you can ask your Anabaptist friends is just what is justification? And Kevin, uh, what would you expect to off be the answer uh, to that question from from most Anabaptists? What is justification? Well, from the Amish perspective, it, I don't think you would get an answer because it's they don't even think about it. But, yeah, I mean, if you press press the the question a little bit, it w- it would come back at the same as the Roman Catholic. I mean, yeah. the, their doctrine is basically the same. Of where they would they would fuse sanctification and justification. That is actually exactly the point I was going to bring up, and I'm glad you brought that up. What, uh, Kevin, can you briefly tell our audience what is the biblical distinguishing between sanctification and justification? Well, justification is, is a one-time event, and sanctification is, is the lifelong process of 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 the Spirit working in and through us rather than as they would they would put it together making making salvation temporary making so you could be able to lose it they when i say that, when we say they fuse it they they make justification a a daily thing at at the end of the day if everything was done according to to the example of christ in, you're justified i mean that that and so in in a way, they would omit both justification and sanctification. You have neither because you neither have the, the Spirit working in and through you, and you you're 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 not justified. You may be justified for the minute or for the you know the moment, but in, in, in the true sense, you're you're never justified. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just want to bring up a, a couple more verses uh, talking about the extent of the atonement, and this is in First Peter two, twenty-four. It says, "He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed." So he actually bore our sins in his body on the tree. Um, he actually took upon our penalty, and he satisfied uh, God's justice in our place uh, and by faith we are then given the righteousness of Christ given to our behalf and therefore we are then justified which is that one time event that uh, Kevin was speaking about 
uh, we are we are justified and therefore we have peace with God and then after we are justified God begins the process of sanctification and often most groups that uh, uh, distort the true gospel of Jesus Christ will confuse sanctification and justification your justification becomes dependent upon your sanctification um, so um, question number eight that I had uh, here was does justification increase before God based upon the performance actions of the individual what are your thoughts on that one Kevin well that like I said I was a youngster so I didn't get a whole lot of, of what their doctrine was but uh, as I said earlier the, the, the whole question you would have to press the, someone from the Amish to even get an answer I mean they, that's not even a thought in their yeah their day to day doctrine is not a big thing for them yeah yeah no, it's all it's all practical yeah you know, and, practical. and even among the the Mennonites were they will focus more on uh, biblical exegesis and 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 try to make some arguments from Scripture they are very much focused and I think we've talked about this before but um, uh, the New Testament, in particular the Gospels, and even more particular the the, the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, they seem to score Scripture, <laughs> uh, especially if it's in the red letters, and if it's in the Sermon on the Mount, um, it has a higher authority than the rest of Scripture, and they don't look at Scripture as a consistent, cohesive revelation from God. Well, as you said, or Earlier, I went over to to speak of a friend of mine, an Anabaptist preacher, and that was uh, one of the things we did talk about. The though I didn't get to talk about most of what you had on the list. Yeah, but uh, he uh, he spoke about how today, you know, they're that they're going back. They're seeing what the Anabaptists have said for hundreds of years now. That you know the authority of Christ. You know the authority of the Gospels. That you know, we're seeing that although you know the reformers that they built their doctrine on on, on the epistles, and and you now today you know well you have what you call you know the red letter Christians, you know, and people are finally seeing what the Anabaptists have fought for for five hundred years. You know now the Protestants are finally seeing that it it it's the Gospels that that give us our doctrine. It's not. No, we we can't build doctrine off of the epistles. I mean, that's going to lead us astray every time, and yeah. it's a blatant, a blatant denial of of the inerrancy of Scripture. Yeah, absolutely. And and this was uh, Kevin was just this was actually just recently in talking to an Anabaptist preacher. This is what he said, and and one thing that I would note is that many uh, Baptists communities these days are now saying that their heritage um, or or that they that they go back to the Anabaptists and not the Baptists of England the particular Baptists and even the general Baptists of which had had no relation at all to the Anabaptists in fact in their first London Baptist Confession of Faith it said it said that they were not of the Anabaptists they wanted to make sure that that distinguishment was made but now today historical revisionism is saying that that uh, many Baptists are are becoming red letter Christians, and this is why this Anabaptist preacher is making the comment. Yeah, if people are finally seeing what we've always said. You know that <laughs> that the Gospels are the the you know where we find our authority, and and this is where we need to focus on. And and I like as he was saying it, I like I mean I didn't even know it. Like it took me by such astonishment. I mean. I mean, you you can't make the statement. I mean, it t to even to even go there. I mean, it's an outright denial, because if you can't build doctrine from the epistles, then they're not truth. If, yeah. If, if they don't match with, if they don't match, if there's with an what's inconsistency, in the gospel, gospel. Yeah. If there's any inconsistency, we have nothing. Yeah. We don't have anything. Yeah. So. No, that's so so true. And I mean, Scripture tells us very clearly in Second uh, Timothy three sixteen that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Not not just the Gospels are breathed out by God. 
but all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. Here's the thing. We as Christians should look at all of scripture. And God is consistent. There is no inconsistency between the Gospels and between the Epistles and between the Gospels and the Old Testament. There's no inconsistency. And, and like, I do need to make clear, like, he, my friend was not, he was not outright, he was not meaning to to say there was inerrancy. But it, it's one of those things that... Or errancy, it, yeah. Yeah, it, you imply it. To, to make that statement, you imply it. If you if you were to ask him, he would say absolutely. You know, the epistles are are the truth of God. He would make that. You know, he would he would declare that right alongside me. But but then, practically, how it works out? Yeah, to yeah. make application of it in in practical terms, he completely denies it by by holding the gospels above the authority of the of the epistles. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, one of the other questions I had is uh, one, of, one of the things that is often, uh, and I've actually, my, my wife's family uh, comes from uh, a Roman Catholic background, and uh, my wife's family, uh, her mom actually made a comment one time about uh, when my wife mentioned something about uh, the Bible telling us that we need to be born again, John chapter 3, um, that uh, she made... Uh, my mother-in-law made the comment that, uh, oh, that, that born-again thing, that's, you know, we Catholics, we don't believe that. That's kind of a Protestant thing. And the the one thing that I noticed with that is that in growing up in the Mennonite um, uh, community, uh, talking about the new birth and and being born again, was not something that was really discussed very much uh, because fundamentally I would say that uh, their view of regeneration and the new birth is pretty insignificant because the new creation is not much of a new creation. He doesn't have much of a heart that's been changed because he can revert back to um, the same you know, the same wicked reprobate he was before. So I'm not sure what uh, an amazing new creation this is of God. But uh, any thoughts on that? Did you ever even hear the term being born again? Um, or was it was it impugned? Or was it just kind of ignored? Well, that, I didn't hear of that until I be, became a Calvinist. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, I heard of it previous. No, uh, I grew Growing up, I mean that that term was never even spoken of. I yeah. I I never I never even heard the term growing up. So yeah, it's uh, I uh, one one question I've always had is that the the view that I grew up with uh, on the new birth and on regeneration is how how weak is the new creation? Um, how weak is one that has been born from above, as Jesus talks about in John chapter 3, if if he can reject God and he can fall away and be lost for eternity, um, what sort of regenerative work of the Holy Spirit is that? Um, and so that is, um, that is a question that you can ask, uh, some, some questions here on regeneration that you can ask. And uh, question number nine I have here is, does a true born-again regenerate believer have possess eternal everlasting life, or is eternal life dependent on their actions? And at number 10 I have, if a true born-again regenerate believer can lose eternal life, what must he do to lose eternal life? Um, what Do you have any thoughts on that particular question? That's a million-dollar question. I'd like to have that one there answered. Yeah. At, at, what, at what point can we lose our salvation? Like, what? I mean, if if you look back through the Old Testament and and you know look look at David, look at Abraham, look at Samson, look at all of I mean, what is the point? I mean, are you gonna say it's murder? Well, that that puts David out, adultery, puts David out, lying. What? Where? Where's the line? I mean, where where do you actually lose your salvation? Yeah, uh, th- what what you're gonna get is you're gonna get arbitrariness. 
you're just going to get uh, they're going to draw the lines at different locations um, now do we as uh, as reformed believers Kevin do we believe that um, that uh, once you get your ticket punched you know you said the you said the prayer and you got your uh, you got your health uh, hellfire insurance and uh, you got the uh, the ticket for the glory train um, do uh, is is, uh, is is that what we mean by that well, if you're a Christian because you raise your hand or said a prayer, then we should probably go back and and start with the gospel. Because, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, unfortunately, there is a lot of groups out there that have uh, taken something true in Scripture and they have distorted it. Um, and uh, we believe that, uh, according to First John two nineteen, that those that went out from us went out from us from us so it might be revealed they were not of us and so when somebody does abandon the faith um, it is a clear sign to us and scripture has told us that they went out from us so it might be revealed they were not of us so somebody who does abandon the faith uh, reveals uh, that apostatizes because I believe in apostasy I believe people abandon a a profession of faith they can abandon a profession of faith, but that does not mean that they were truly regenerate. Truly regenerate believers of God will persevere to the end because he who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. Yeah, yeah. we. I mean, I think we have to, to go with, with Jesus in John 3 and in this conversation with Nicodemus. I mean, I don't know that there is a, a more clear uh part of scripture to answer that question i mean we must be born again yeah and and it's the work of the spirit so yeah absolutely and in that same text it talks about uh the spirit moving like the wind where he wills um and uh question number 12 that i had is uh or question number 11 was what is your view on regeneration so this is a good question you could ask an anabaptist uh, question number 12, what impact does the new birth regeneration have on in an, an individual? How is he changed? And ultimately, if you don't believe in the perseverance of the believer who has had a regenerated heart, then you cannot believe that there is much of an impact, that regeneration in the new birth has much of an impact at all on an individual. Um uh, question number 13 is, what does the Bible mean by we are dead in sin, Ephesians 2, 1, and a slave to sin, John 8, 34? Um, and truly, with their view of the autonomous free will of man in salvation, um, they cannot truly believe that we are slaves to sin and that we are dead in sin. You know, say that question there would go to our Arminian brothers and sisters also yeah that same question would go to them yeah absolutely um and question number 14 what is the atonement of jesus christ accomplished and we just read colossians two fourteen that he canceled the record of debt uh nailing it that that was against us nailing it to the cross he canceled it and so that is what we believe as orthodox christians um, who believe what the bible tells us about the atonement of christ that his atoning work actually canceled the record of debt it brought many sons into glory um he uh lives to intercede for them um and we see all that in the book of hebrews and so the the atoning work of jesus christ actually accomplishes uh the salvation for those for whom it was intended um then question number 15 is does god simply observe human history or does he determine it in any way? And this would be a question even for, as you said, for our Arminian friends. But um, uh, honestly, I would say in many cases that the that the Mennonites and the Amish would go beyond even many Arminians today when it comes to uh, the gospel. Yeah, as I said earlier, I mean, the, the Amish and the Mennonites, for the most part, are the true five-point Arminians. And yeah. If, if you get if you ask them that question i i mean it like i said if you pressed it but the the upfront answer is is it it depends on 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 our actions yeah that is what determines not only determines our initial salvation and justification but our continued perseverance is all dependent upon us 
Yes. Uh, that we we need to remain faithful, and it's not the faithfulness of Christ, it's not the work of Christ that accomplished our salvation, but our work. And um, and that is some stuff that we touched on earlier. So that kind of ends that part of the discussion. We wanted to kind of jump a little bit into celestial flesh, <clears throat> and we wanted to read uh, from this uh, book uh, by Dietrich Philip, which uh, Jason, uh, Jason, uh, Kevin, I don't know why I called him Jason. Don't know his own name. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, Kevin managed to procure this book from our Anabaptist preacher friend. And, um, and we want to read a section. He, in fact, from my looking through this book, he actually talks about the celestial flesh doctrine in quite a few different places. I, I saw it in quite a few different places, but he has one particular place where he focuses on it quite a bit. Um, in the section called the incarnation of Christ and so I just want to read a section of it here and then we'll uh, comment and we'll talk briefly about it yeah and, and as I said when I, I brought you the book it as we started out you know the question you know are are the Anabaptists our forefathers are they were they orthodox Christians were were, were the reformers crazy I mean did because you know, Calvin, Luther, and Zwingli all, without a doubt, condemned them as heretics. Yeah. I mean, so, like, the question is, was there heresy there? Yeah. And, like, I mean, as you'll see once once we read it, I mean, the, we went through, you know, the inner word the, over the outer word, the, the prophecies, the the imminent return of Christ, all the prophecies, the, the, the violent, Anabaptists, and then and then, the only ones left are are the the non- Trinitarian heretics yeah. too. Yeah, well, yeah. So you have those, but the ones yeah. that are left are you know you have Mental Simons and and Dirk Phillips. I mean that was the the non-violent, non-resistant, and and if you read their stuff, a lot of most of it is, at, you know, at first glance it is very orthodox. So it raises a question, you know. Were these our true brothers and sisters? But then we also, you know, well, heresy is subtle. It's yeah. It, it's nobody. The heretic wasn't. You don't know the heretic because they everything they wrote was uh, was was heresy. I mean, they don't run around it, holding signs saying "I'm a heretic," do they? No, no, and, they they and, don't do that. <laughs> and it's 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 the small things, the hidden things that that they uh, proclaim that. Well, you touched on a really good point there, is the question we really have to ask ourselves, were the Reformers wrong when they said that they were heretics? And that's a question we have to ask ourselves. You know, if if there's those of you out there that think we're too hard on the Anabaptists, um, you know, were the Reformers wrong? And that's a question that you have to answer. You have uh, to look at what they wrote and what they said. That was one thing as I was was, was doing research on it, and that was one thing that kept coming up. I mean— as as I kept looking, I was like, you know, they they seem orthodox, and as I said, the, the celestial flesh thing, you can't find a whole lot on it. And if you look through the Mental Simon's works, have been pretty well purged. You won't find a whole lot written on mental, written by Mental Simon's on celestial flesh. But I mean, Dirk Phillips and Mental Simon's. If you look back, I mean, they were they were they were like two peas in a pod in in yeah. that era. Yeah, and uh, and. I mean, you you see, you have the accusations of the of the reformers, you know, that that said, you know, they they both believed this, and the two weren't that tight, and one write write a big section on it, and the other one not hold to it. With yeah, no, I think it's pretty clear um, that uh, Menno Simons held to the celestial flesh doctrine just as strongly as what Dirk Phillips did, or Dietrich Phillips. Um, I think you actually asked uh, our. Uh, Anabaptist uh, preacher this question um, on what his view was of celestial flesh. Do you, have, you want to briefly tell you tell what his reaction was to that? Well, I yeah, I asked him, and at first he he acted like he wasn't sure because I I I posed the question as in because as I told Jason, you know, I I've searched, you know, I've 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 been through everything trying to find you know exactly what it what it was, some writing, you know, let, describe it for me so. The last thing I want to do is misrepresent the doctrine. I you know I I'll look for writing. You know I I hear about you know the heresy of the celestial flesh, but 
could find nothing on it as far as online and stuff and in my searches and so like i i went over and i asked him i was like you know so what you know what about it you know and he, and he said well he don't really know anything about it you know reading mental simon's work he doesn't really find anything in mental simon's about celestial flesh so we kind of talked about you know well you know online you know some of the, I brought up some of the things you know what seems to deny humanity and and he and he was the one who right who came right out and said yeah you know that if if that's that's a heresy you know that that that's a heresy yeah yeah he did say that yeah yeah so, yeah. so then he actually gave you this book um, and in here we have the celestial flesh doctrine so we're just going to go ahead and read this uh, I will. Um, tell you it's on page 99 is where we're going to begin reading this and um, we're going to start reading at the bottom of the page and there's a lot on this particular topic here but this one here is uh, the most definitive on this and so I just want to read this and um, see what you guys think about this so it says um, uh, on page 99 and it's the uh, fourth paragraph down says but if the body of Christ had been formed by Mary, as the world thinks and says, with such want of understanding regarding it, then there would be no difference between the body of Christ and that of Adam. Because like as Christ was conceived of the Holy Ghost in Mary, so also Adam was made by God and had no other father than God. What difference would there be then between the body of Christ and the body of Adam? If the body of Christ had been made of the earth, the same as the body of Adam, for the body of Christ would necessarily have been made of earth if it had been formed of human seed. For because of the body, for because of the body, all men are dust and earth. It might, however, be suggested that Adam was made of pure earth by God, but the earth was corrupted by sin, and all men were laid under the curse and became corrupt in their nature. How then should Christ have had have an uncorrupted body if he had not been formed of human if he had been formed of human seed, which is corrupt? Far from it. God the Heavenly Father prepared for Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, a body, not of corrupt human seed, but of his incorruptible seed, which he caused Mary, the pure virgin, to conceive through the power of the Holy Spirit as the foretold statements from the evangelists and the apostles clearly demonstrate. Therefore, Christ everywhere testifies that he came down from heaven, but he speaks of his or origin. In John chapter six fifty one. I am the living bread who came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I give is of my flesh, which I give for the life of the world, which is the primary text they, they often use. Then he says this, Now if Christ is the bread of heaven, and if the bread of heaven, moreover, is the flesh of Christ... It is impossible for the flesh of Christ to be formed by Mary, for neither the seed of Mary nor that of any earthly creature can by any means, by the true living bread that came down from, be the true living bread that came down from heaven or be so called. So in this text here, he's obviously saying that Jesus did not have a body, uh, an earthly body like we have um, specifically he says here that um, um, that uh, Adam had a body made of the earth and of the dust and the earth and that um, that there's no way that Jesus could have had a body made of dust and earth because that would have meant it was corrupted what what is a fundamental presupposition there that he has that is a problem any thought on that i'm not exactly sure where you're going like yeah he's he's, he's what his his fundamental presupposition would be there that earth and matter is bad is evil yeah i see where you're going yeah. now yeah i mean that that was a big part i think of the celestial flesh it was gnosticism yeah which is really what it is, a dualistic worldview that says all that is matter is evil and that which is a spirit is good. So Jesus had to have uh, some sort of flesh that came from heaven, which is where they come with the celestial flesh doctrine, that he had some sort of celestial flesh and that he did not have true humanity. And he goes, they go on to argue 
that uh, the seed of the woman is more just idiomatic in the same way as it says that, you know, Jesus is the door or he is the rock. Uh, they say that the the seed, he's not really the seed of the woman. Um, uh, my question is, if, if that's idiomatic, they said the, the way and his argument as you go on is, um, and he's got it on the next page here on page 104. Um, it tells it, it says, in the first place, the scripture in many places speaks figuratively and calls many things differently by letter than they are in spirit and real nature. And as they need to be understood, therefore Christ had many names in the scripture, which according to the outward being in no sense belong to him. For instance, he is called the rock and the vine, not that he is in reality a natural rock or vine, but for significance sake, he is so called by the same token, he is called the seed of the woman. So, what he goes on to then argue is to say that uh, he is the seed of the woman by the fact that, you know, he came out of Mary, um, but he was not actually of Mary. And um, the, the, the problem would be that as scripture tells us that he is the seed of Abraham, right? And the seed of David. How is that possible? Yeah, I want to say in, through the, throughout the Old Testament, I mean, you have, I mean, it's added on the root of Jesse. The, yep. The, the offspring of David. Yeah, the yeah. offspring of David. I mean, it, it builds and builds. It's, I mean, the seed of the woman starts in Genesis three, and I mean, we just see it escalated and added to throughout the Old Testament. So, yeah. I, well, and the the writer of Hebrews is so clear that um, that he is always like as we are, yet without sin, so that he could bring many sons into glory and he he says that he is like his brothers uh in every respect uh so that he could save them so if jesus is not true humanity if he is not if he does not have a human nature like us then he then we're still in our sins this is why celestial flesh is a is a serious uh error uh biblically well, I think the reformers called it heresy. Yes, I would say. <laughs> yeah, I think I misspoke and, there. Heresy, yeah. yeah. And that that really was the thing. As I said, you know, as I was going through it, I mean, it comes, there's two options. Either the Anabaptists were heretics or the reformers lied. And, I mean, that's, yeah. we, we can't go back and, and and do revisionist history and, you know, Hey, the reformers didn't lie, and hey, they're not heretics. I mean, that not both can be true. So yeah, yeah. Well, that is a serious issue. Um, now, uh, I, I, you know, would want to make it clear that most uh, of the Anabaptist groups today probably never even heard of celestial flesh. In fact, I never even heard of the doctrine until I studied the Anabaptists after I was no longer an Anabaptist. And in fact, uh, my wife uh, seems to say the same thing when it comes to Catholicism. She knows way more about Catholicism since she's no longer a Catholic. <laughs> so um, I learned a lot about my Anabaptist history that I didn't know uh, while I was an Anabaptist. Well, uh, probably the biggest thing for even bringing this up is there would be two reasons. As I said, you know, we we can't do revision history. And and the other thing is is as for my friend as a pastor, you know, he he has all these things, but when you ask him, he he's a lot of the things he's doing is he's doing it to honor those who came before him, and that that's an answer that a lot of people have. Well, you know, we we live this way, we do this and this, you know, to honor those who came before us, you know, mm -hmm. that that had these beliefs. So. Yeah, well, our honor first of all should always go to God and to Christ uh, before any man. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we all, um, have followed and, uh, look at men in the past as, you know, those giants who went before us, uh, in the faith, you know, we look at men like Paul, uh, who wrote scripture and, uh, uh some of the early church fathers, uh, like Athanasius and, and, um, Tertullian and, um, Chrysostrom and, and Augustine uh, so these these uh, men who are heroes of the faith, and so we look at them, but we always have to look at them uh, through Scripture, 
Scripture needs to be paramount before any sort of tradition that comes from men. And you know, the the Protestant reformers they they had they they made errors too. Um, uh, absolutely, uh, Luther had had issues, um, no doubt, and uh, so did Calvin, and so did Zwingli, and and uh, so did you, so do you and I. Oh, seriously? Yeah, yeah. No, we we have our issues too. But uh, praise God, He's sanctifying us, and He's. Uh, sanctifying us through the word of truth as Jesus prayed for us in John chapter 17. Uh, sanctify them through your word. Your word is truth. And uh, God continues to grow us and to sanctify us through his word. And we pray uh, for his work among the Anabaptists. We pray that they would come to know, uh, if they do not know the true gospel, we do believe that there are those within the Anabaptists, even the Amish, who uh, who are saved and do understand the gospel. But uh Many of them do not understand the gospel and need to hear and know the true gospel of God's grace and how God graciously saves undeserving sinners. Uh, he saves them. He gives them the gift of faith. He grants them eternal life, and they will live with him for eternity. Um, and it is not by their own merits that this is accomplished, but by the grace of God alone. So, well, uh, thank you guys for joining us today um, on this final episode on the Anabaptists. Um, hopefully this was helpful to you if you uh, encounter any Mennonites, um, any uh, form of the Amish. Uh, be prepared to share the gospel with them. Uh, they, Many of them will, have, uh, will be very self-righteous uh, and think that they uh, already know the truth. But uh, that should never stop us from sharing the truth of the gospel because it is, the, it is the power of God unto salvation, and it can break through the hardest hearts uh, and the most self-righteous hearts. And, and in fact, uh, the gospel broke through my heart, and my heart was pretty self-righteous, I have to say. So um, if it can break through my heart, and uh, then it can break through the hearts of uh, those who follow the Anabaptist heritage, but yet don't truly understand the true gospel of grace. So I encourage you, if you know the gospel, if you're a Christian, to share that faith and to, um, uh, to share that with any Anabaptist that you encounter. So thank you for joining us today, and uh, God willing, Lord willing, we will see you guys next week.